0: Welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Dr. H.A. Hellier. He's a Senior Associate Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's the author of A Revolution Undone, Egypt's Road Beyond Revolt, published by Hearst in 2016. Our conversation today focuses on governance, what the people in the MENA region get from their governments, and what they deserve. Hisham, welcome to the Arab Digest podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Now, a trope that's been embraced by Western governments over many years is that the people of the Middle East don't really want accountable government. What they really want are strong authoritarian leaders. What do you make of that that particular trope?
1: Well, I think the trope is quite... Amusing in 2020, uh, considering we're having this discussion only days after Joe Biden was uh, confirmed as president-elect of the United States, uh, but against an opposition in the Donald Trump campaign, which you know was extremely popular in the United States, and frankly represents that precise model of a, you know a strong man. And it's precisely that sort of model that seemed to appeal to his voters. Uh, And for for anybody to assume that, you know, that's a trait that is specific to the Arab world is is quite amusing. And on the contrary, when it comes to the Arab world and they're, quote unquote, wanting a strongman or a dictator, I think you just need to look at the region over the past decade. You've seen protests, uprisings, uh, armed and unarmed. Engaged in uh, precisely because they want accountability. They don't want uh, people who rule over them without any sense of law and order and and being held accountable for how they rule over their people. And uh, quite frankly, they uh, on that level they express a deeper commitment, uh, civic commitment, in my opinion, than many people in the West uh, because they're willing to actually put. Um, put their lives at risk in order to demand a more accountable government in ways that, quite frankly, I'm not sure that uh, that we would in the West. So the, the idea of the quote-unquote uh, strong man is the only way for us to find leaders in the Arab world uh, that are acceptable, I, th- I think is just very, um, I mean, amusing is one way to put it, but it's quite shocking after all of the evidence uh, to the contrary. Now, I will say that as a, as a side point to that, that you will find that many people are tired after the, the tumultuous sort of last decade. So it's not surprising that you find less appetite for uprising in many places that have gone through uprisings. And I think that's perfectly natural and normal because the counter-revolutionary waves were so powerful and so overwhelming against that. But that's not the same thing as saying that they've given up on accountability. I think it's just that they have so many other things that they need to focus on at the moment. And you still find, if we're talking about the, the, you know, the broad Arab world here, you still find people wanting to protest, demanding for a better life for themselves and their families. Whether you look at Algeria, whether you look at Sudan, whether you look at Lebanon, over the past few years, that's extremely clear. And I do think that it's just a very self-serving kind of policy for many in different Western capitals to promote, because if you don't need to worry about things like accountability, then it makes things a lot easier for you to just engage in a very transactional relationship uh, with many of these states.
0: And as you say, the Trump presidency has delivered a level of impunity to these authoritarian regimes. That has really led to significant crackdowns.
1: So I don't know if it's led to the crackdowns per se, because I think that that would give more agency over to the Trump administration than it deserves. But I do think that the way in which the Trump administration has engaged with different parts of the region over the past four years has certainly given um, and given accurately the impression that if you as our partners in the region do X, you don't need to worry about us doing Y. I don't think that a Biden administration is going to be, you know, a panacea for any of that. But I do think it's going to be, even if relatively speaking, less permissive.
0: Let's look at Egypt in your book, "A Revolution Undone, which is, I, I recommend everyone listening to this to go and 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 buy a copy and read it because it is an extraordinarily powerful and moving book. And you wrote about the Egyptian revolution, what it meant to the people and to you. And for those of, who have not yet read the book, uh, can you give us some of the flavor of those extraordinary days and, and what was it like for you at that time?
1: So... Uh, I I, I thank you for recommending uh, the work. It was actually a great pleasure to launch the book At Rusi With Yourself back in 2016. Um, The book followed the period between the end of 2010 and roughly 2015. So it goes through a bunch of highs and lows. Right. Um, So when we talk about those 18 days of uprising that you alluded to, and we're coming up to the 10th anniversary of that, it was really an extraordinary time. I cannot compare that period in my life with any other since or before that. Uh, the, the, the energy that I saw and felt um, on the streets of Cairo, I was in Cairo at the time, seeing the difference between the country that I knew for years before that Um, and then seeing people really just sort of flower during those 18 days. uh, And being in Tahrir Square itself uh, was an experience I will never, ever forget. The, 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 The power of people in a country where they knew it was incredibly risky to even be there, and yet they demanded on having their voices heard, And in a way, that was really quite beautiful. I mean, when I went to the square, there were times in the square where obviously they were defending against thugs, and um, where the the police had tried to crack down on it and so on. But when it wasn't like that, it was almost like a festival. People were there with their families, um, at different points of view were being expressed very vigorously, but very peacefully, without any hint of there being violence or anything like that between those who believed in the idea of the square, which was um, a pluralistic space where people could be free to express their opinions as long as they allowed others to do the same, and recognize that the overwhelming problem that Egypt faced was a regime that simply wouldn't allow its people to breathe. So. You know, that was really a beautiful time. And I wrote the book, frankly, because I got a little bit, and I go into this in the book, I got frustrated a little bit by people who almost wanted to forget that those days in that period had happened or were rewriting that historical period so that the, not simply the, the beauty of it, but also the complexities and the nuances of it got pushed to one side. So that was one major reason why I wanted to write it because the you know historical revisionism just really began to sort of take off when I started writing the well around the time that I started writing the book about a year before and I really wanted to make sure there was that historical record that that at least um, was there for people to refer to so that was one reason and the second reason was that as part of that you know, historical revisionism that I saw going on, there was this tendency to look at the period, particularly from 2011, 2015, through one of two prisms. Either you were uh, pro-Muslim brotherhood or you were uh, pro-military. And uh, the, the prism that I saw most of all, you know, personally, as somebody who was on the ground then, was really through the the lenses of those who were from the human rights community from the journalistic community and from what we called the revolutionary camp that really believed in the promise of the twenty fifth of january uprising you know that revolutionary camp it refused to align with either you know this massive institution of the military or supported it nor were they uh, necessarily uh, backers of the Muslim Brotherhood, for whom the revolution ended when Hosni Mubarak was pushed out of power. Now, I'm not making an equivalence here between those two those two groups. One group was, you know, it was a non-state actor. The other was, you know, this massive state actor. But those were the two frames that I think predominated in how people narrated and understood the events of 2011 to 2015. And uh, I, I think that You know, that uh, voice on the ground that I mentioned was constantly being sort of overlooked or pushed to one side, uh, or I should say squeezed to one side, because, you know, that revolutionary camp, as I call it in the book, and what what we did call on the ground in in Egypt at the time, it refused to align with either, and it just meant that it kept on getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed to the the margins of the sidelines, as it were. Uh, so, as I look back on that period ten years later, obviously things are very, very different. Uh, the, the revolutionary camp—many of them are in jail or in exile, or are trying their hardest to do a very difficult job within media or, or human rights organizations. They still exist, but you know they were—they were quite a small group back uh, in 2011, 2013. They're far smaller even now um and when it comes to the major actors uh, that played a role in that uh, in that revolutionary period of 2011 2013 the the military is obviously you know completely on top um, has consolidated uh, tremendously the Muslim Brotherhood is, is fragmented and either in jail or in exile so it's a completely different type of place and um, and at the same time, the the conditions, I think, that led to, uh, to 2011 occurring, to the uprising occurring, those conditions remain and are, frankly, far more wider uh, today as compared to then. So um, I think it's foolhardy, as some people say, that, you know, you can't expect that anything would ever happen again. I don't think that's true. I, I worry about what sort of shape it would take, um, given everything that's happened. But um, I do think that the the underlying problems haven't been addressed, uh, and I think that it's it's important for people to consider that. Um, while at the same time, as I said, people people are very tired. Uh, they have many they have many other things to consider and worry about at the present time in any case so i'm not i'm not one of those people to say that you know the, another uprising is around the corner or something like that i think that's i think that's you know not not very much in keeping with how things are playing out in egypt at the present time but i do think there are underlying uh, issues that have yet to be addressed
0: that's interesting you speak about that that energy of the street and that coming together stepping out of the uh, The two frames, if you will, of those who supported the military and those who supported the Brotherhood and introducing this other energy, this focus. That's still there. It's tamped down by really a brutal Sisi regime. But when you look across the region and you look at, as you mentioned, young Arabs taking to the streets in Lebanon, in Algeria, in Iraq, in Sudan, do you take hope from that? Is that energy still there? Does that have the potential to affect some change?
1: Uh, Well, yes. Um, But I also think that we need to keep in mind that, you know, I mean, Arabism is a a potent force. But, you know, we're talking about 22 Arab countries, Arab populations, and within them, obviously, non-Arab populations and so on but you know it's not necessarily the case that what happens in Iraq has a direct influence on what happens in Egypt or vice versa what i think is is pertinent here is that these are many most of these are young populations and the average age in a country like Egypt i think is about 23 and only about a decade ago it was maybe 26 right so you know, the, the age is dropping, which means that there's a much larger pool of young people that want to find a way to make a life for themselves. And that requires an infrastructure of the state that's able to provide for opportunity in some way. And that's what I mean when I say the conditions are, are still there and haven't been addressed. Now, when you talk about you know things happening in Sudan, i mean sudan i mean sudan is a, is an incredible story because you know it it, it Sudanese had to tolerate a military backed uh, dictatorship that was underpinned by uh, a certain type of you know i'd say radical or conservative islamism which you know complicates the situation further because you know in some in, in many countries it's the quote unquote secular military establishment against, you know, the, the Islamists, right? And in Sudan, actually, they were one and the same, which also explains, you know, some of the more complicated narratives that were coming out of Islamist camps within the region when it came to Sudan. But, you know, that's another story. They faced all of that down, okay? And uh, against the backdrop of a very, very difficult economic situation and humanitarian situation. And it, it, it's what makes the, the, the sort of push, uh, from the Trump administration to normalize with, you know, with Israel, uh, particularly odious, uh, because it was so much, it, it was so much against public opinion in Sudan, but they really forced forced the issue. And I think that Sudan uh, didn't feel like it could, it could say no. Given you know the fact that it's still the the terrorism uh, the terrorist uh, state list and so on, but there you go. There were people that really felt that they had to make a go of this, and they did. And you, I think you'll see that again and again and again in different parts of the region, and probably many other regions as well, where these states have yet to be able to provide even at a minimum level for their populations. And you know, many of these states are really just holdovers from the colonial period, right? And they, uh, they haven't really moved on enough since then, uh, which means that they were built for very small populations, but also with uh, certain types of uh, authoritarian structures uh, in mind. I mean, what's colonialism if not that? It's not possible to rule over a population that you occupy unless it's an authoritarian structure, and, uh, they, and you know the post-colonial states inherited those sorts of structures. You know the, the the infamous protest laws that exist in places like Egypt, but elsewhere in the region, those are you many of those are holdovers from colonial administrations, right? So I I, I think that the, there's a strong likelihood that you'll see dissent or upheaval of some sort or another for quite some time in different parts of the region, unless, and you know, this is always possible, I don't know if it's particularly likely, but it's possible, unless these, uh, these states realize that if they truly want a sustainable future uh, for themselves and their children, their grandchildren, that they have to be uh, very radical about how they uh, press the reset button.
0: You mentioned we're coming up to the 10-year anniversary of the revolution uh, and of the Arab Spring. It seems extraordinary. It is 10 years. But there are those who would say that the Arab Spring is a failure. Is it a failure?
1: We're talking about 10 years. We're not talking about 100. Um, So I think that what you have in many of the countries where there were uh, uprisings, there were underlying issues that Uh, existed for decades before. And I always saw the uprisings as uh, safety valves that were being released um, in order to extinguish that pressure. So frankly, in in many of these places, without those uprisings having taken place, I think you might have seen something much, much, much more uh, disastrous take place thereafter, because of all of those underlying kind of pressures. In Tunisia, it worked out in a certain way, um, primarily because of power dynamics on the ground. Nobody could do a winner-takes-all, zero-sum-game kind of thing because nobody had the backing of either a popular base or an institutional one that could realistically do that. That wasn't the case in a place like Egypt and, you know, Obviously, the Syrians uh, tried, uh, as in the Syrian regime tried, and they had to actually get support from outside of the country, uh, particularly from the Iranians and the Russians, in order to even hold on. And uh, people want to sort of create this narrative again. And this again, this is part of why I wrote the book, that you know people kind of woke up one day and decided, we're going to revolt. You know, there's this big plan that we've got and we're going to revolt. And it didn't really happen like that. Um, These were reactions to events that were taking place on the ground. And quite frankly, at multiple points, uprisings could have been averted had the people in power recognized that people on the street um, and just the, the population writ large wanted a change. And they could, and all of those regimes could have come out looking like heroes, quite frankly, had they done not particularly much, you know. Um, but they didn't, and you know that's what forced the situation in so many places. Nobody's, nobody's sort of, you know, keen to go and risk their lives for uh, for political causes like this. If they do so, then it's because they feel very much under uh, intense pressure and threat to do so, um, and. I think that was the case in in Libya and elsewhere in the region as well. Now, was it a failure? You know, I I think that's just a very strange question to even pose only a few years after uh, what happened. Was the French Revolution a failure? I don't think people would say that today, but I'm not so sure they would have had the same answer uh, 10 years after the fact, right? Uh, History judges these sorts of events over a long period of time not in uh, not in a few years and I will say that there are still lasting effects for those uprisings in multiple places so those have to be taken into the equation as well if we're if we're saying that the the measure of success was that everywhere was going to end up like Tunisia ended up within a few years then yes of course it's a failure but I'm not sure that that's the the measure that people should be uh, should be using, because I think that was always going to be rather unrealistic. And I I think the story um, still continues, even if it's a far more difficult story uh, to follow. Um, And this is also something that, you know, I hope listeners of yours, particularly in the West, will pay attention to. This region is worthy of following or understanding and interpreting, um, even when it's not popular to do so. There were many people who sort of jumped on this back in 2011 because it was exciting and it was a good story. It was a happy story. But really the point is the uh, the desire for people in the region to live better lives. And that story continues to be important, irrespective of how... Uh, how inspiring the, the current headline happens to be.
0: Mm, the story goes on. Let me finally ask you, Hisham. Uh, Joe Biden, the expectation that things could be different, but I wonder, does it really make that big a difference now? Does, does America, what America thinks and what America does, does it really matter as much now as it as it used to?
1: You know. Um, it's it's all quite relative in my opinion, right? So I think a Biden one administration is going to look better for the region than a Trump two. Well, that's not really saying very much, you know. Um, the, the standard is pretty low. The bar is pretty low. So I think that what you're likely to have is a Biden administration that is going to be first not loud in supporting autocratic moves or engendering them. Um, like they did, particularly when it came to the Sudan move. I, I have a really intense distaste for how the the push on Sudan took place vis a vis normalization, as well as you know moves like moving the embassy to Jerusalem and so on. I, I don't think that people are going to expect anything like that to happen again under a Biden administration. So you know that negative stuff goes to one side. In terms of the positive. I frankly think there's going to be a minimum of positive moves that take place, um, on top of the absence of the negative. So I think that you'll see, uh, statements coming out of the Biden administration, if certain things sort of happen, you know, maybe people get arrested for reasons they ought not to be arrested for. And the Biden administration from the state department of the white house, I would expect will say something about that, but it's not going to be, um, it's not going to be a tremendous difference than say the Obama administration in that regard. You have states in the region being quite, you know, uneasy about a, a about a Biden administration, and that's probably good. You know, I think it's good that they feel uneasy, but I'm not sure that they'll have all that much to be uneasy about. Um, if they're comparing to the Trump administration, then yes, it's a less permissive atmosphere. But again, that's extremely relative.
0: Hisham, thanks very much.
1: Thank you. My pleasure.
0: You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Dr. H.A. Hellier, a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's the author of A Revolution Undone, Egypt's Road Beyond Revolt, published by Hearst in 2016. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of 10 pounds a month or 100 pounds per year. And for academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.